Yeah, that's right. Telephone tough guy. Put Vito on a phone. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm recording this the day after the Los Angeles Lakers won their 17th NBA championship. Congratulations to LeBron, the whole team, and the city. So much needed positivity after a wild and crazy year. From Los Angeles to Dartford, New Hampshire, by way of New Jersey, let's get into Live Free or Die. HBO synopsis. News breaks about Vito's secret life, but Tony tries to avoid a rush to judgment. Benny and Terry Doria find Vito, but he races off and hides out in a small New Hampshire town. Meanwhile, Tony and Christopher look abroad to take care of Rusty for Johnny Sack. Carmela's spec house is ransacked, and Tony puts Carlo in charge of Vito's construction business. This episode was written by committee. David Chase, Terrence Winter, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess. This was Robin and Mitchell's final episode writing on the show. It was directed by Tim Van Patten and originally aired April 16th, 2006. The title, Live Free or Die, comes from New Hampshire's state motto. And later in the episode, Vito reads it off a license plate. It's a great title for this show because it's a false choice, as we'll see. We open on Tony's backyard, particularly idyllic, calm before the storm vibes, framed by the trees on either side. There's a depth and color and tone we haven't seen since Tony stands in his yard in the final scene of Isabella, right after the attempt on his life. We see six pool chairs in that moment, too, just as we do here. Six seasons, maybe, as we considered back then. There's wind again, birds, Tony sipping coffee in a robe. First time I saw it, I remember thinking, maybe, just maybe, we'll see those ducks. He sits down, breathing it all in before cracking open the latest edition of Yachting Magazine, magazine founded by a founding member of the NAACP. Predictably, this otherwise calm, ordinary, peaceful moment doesn't last long. He's immediately interrupted by a rattling air conditioner. A nod, perhaps, to Kevin Finnerty's career as a heating and cooling unit salesman. Also, at the very least, there's a rattle in the inner workings of this thing of ours this episode, a much larger one in the form of Vito Spatafor. Be that as it may, still in every day is a gift mode, Tony breathes calmly before inspecting. He diagnoses the rattle to be from the cover, so he tosses it like an Aaron Rodgers shovel pass and carries on. 
Or was it Brett Favre with the legendary shovel passes? Either way, it's a Green Bay mainstay. Then, continuing with the NFL theme, he dives back into his magazine, feet up, crisp air entering his lungs, like Juju Smith-Schuster laying it out in the back of the end zone when the sound returns. Cut from one thorn in his side to another, or at least about to be. Vito on the waterfront. Terry Malloy over here. He's with a girlfriend, Jill. Guy was really propping this thing up every which way, checking all the boxes. He was in all the permutation zone, except for the one little detail. He got caught in leather. He's watching a TV with waves crashing on it while sitting next to a window with a panoramic view of water. How meta is that? Like sitting in a lodge at a ski resort watching people ski on TV. Or going to a gym to watch other people work out. The actual location is a house on Long Island, just south of Far Rockaway in Atlantic Beach. And the body of water we're looking at is called the Reynolds Channel. She wants to lay out, go out, eat, have sex, something, anything. As we'll see in a moment, this pattern is habitual. Women in Vito's life are deprived. Jill's shit out of luck. Vito's not in the mood, attributing much of it to blood sugar on account of the weight loss. She storms out, but not before Vito warns her of skin cancer. Not sure a father figure was one of the things she was looking for in Vito. Made me wonder why he even cared about the company to begin with. And didn't he suspect she might talk? Spill the beans on their pillow talk or lack thereof? I know that's Tony-level paranoia, but guy's exposed now. Thoughts like that should be darting around. See what I did there? Cut to Satrials, viewed from the inside, looking out. A bit of a recent creative choice. I like to think of it as the ghost of old man Satrial looking out at the world through his storefront. Like if Pearl Jam wrote a song about him, instead of elderly woman behind the counter in a small town, it might go something like, elderly man who couldn't repay his debts and lost digits from his hand as a result, along with the burden of an unsustainable career-crippling kick behind the counter of a pork store in Newark. Instant platinum hit, you ask me. We see Tony, or the back of Tony, sitting out front, still reading. Love the parallel that Autopsy pointed out between this scene and the scene that immediately preceded it with Vito. The reading theme is important, and it's a great buildup to a line I myself have gotten a lot of mileage out of post-show, though it's cost me dearly. Let me read in peace, will you? Chris pulls up in Johnny Sack's Maserati, and we get that beautiful, low-angle shot of the two of them sitting down at the table. Always a shiv that cracks open a bloom of possibility and perspective every time we see it. Red and white checkered tablecloths regally flapping in the New Jersey wind. Note that there's three of them. 
They're speaking code about Rusty. Heavy dose of code last few episodes, since Tony got out of the hospital especially. Perhaps an uptick in paranoia and instinct to protect what he's got and where he's at. Or maybe just that we haven't heard it in a while, so it feels heavy-handed. Tony says Rusty's getting fitted for a suit by two of the best tailors in Italy. Love that. Chris wearing shades while talking to the boss, no less. Remember how Tony feels about guys with hats and restaurants? Chris ponders the decision for a beat and then offers to pick the guys up from the airport. Tony says, wait till they contact you. Then set them up with a third party who will get them some scissors. Great continuance of the metaphor. Maybe Chris will go to the same guy he would for those Tech Nines from last episode. Chris says, upon further reflection, that this is smart. The best decision. T is over the moon to have his full support. To have the vision be equally crystal clear. A bell rings, more bells ringing, and Benny and Murmur come out. Perry does, too. At which point T gets up to talk to him about what happened last episode. Perry shrugs it off, says it's fine. It was just a couple stitches. Looked like more than that, though. His face tells a different story. It's like people who say they just had a mild case of COVID, but were on a ventilator. Tony hands him a fistful of dollars like Clint Eastwood. That film, by the way, is being adapted into a TV series. And Perry apologizes for raising his hand, even though he again doubles down that he doesn't remember slamming the refrigerator door. Guys trying to get the last word with a boss. How's that working out? Cut from a broken face to a broken soul. Chris at an AA meeting. Chris and Murmur signal to each other to grab a smoke outside. Addictive habits never die. They scoot right as a woman is mid-story. There's a great shot of them walking out. We're following them from behind. When Chris says, human frailty makes me sick sometimes. Frailty has to do with moral weakness and the liability to yield to temptation. This, as he cuts out of a meeting early, designed to curb addiction, to light up. Hypocrisy and bullshit at every turn. Chris oftentimes at the very epicenter of all of it. A third man, Kevin Mucci, trails them, introduces himself. They met at the Trotters, the horse races. He's Sal Ayacuzo's cousin. Recall Sal's the Lupertazzi guy who spotted Vito at the gay bar while he was collecting some protection money there. Says he's from Yonkers, a city in New York just outside of Manhattan. What a name. Equal parts goofy and intrigue. It's derived from a guy called Adrian Vanderdonk. Or more specifically, his honorific, John Keir. He was a Dutch settler who was granted the land by the guy who bought Manhattan Island. That guy paid around 1100 bucks in 2020 dollars for the entire island. That's less than the dollar per square foot of a lot of apartments in the city today. Perhaps a sign of the times 
One of the first things you find when you look up Yonkers is the song by Tyler, the Creator. Other famous Yonkerites, since we're here and all, DMX, a pot of Bing reference favorite, the son of Sam serial killer, David Berkowitz, currently serving six consecutive life sentences for his crimes, former FBI director James Comey, NBA broadcaster Mike Breen, which immediately tells you there's got to be something in the water in Yonkers that contributed to his legendary bang. If you're slightly crazy like me, you can easily go down a YouTube rabbit hole of best of Mike Breen bangs for an hour. It's actually therapeutic. If his zeal and zest and emphasis doesn't cajole you out of a rut you're in, nothing will. Finally, on our trip through Yonkers, fictional character Bobby Axelrod from Billions. Figured I'd do a Showtime reference here too since another one pops up later in the episode. Anyway, back to Kevin Mucci and Chris. We see via a wide shot that the AA session was hosted at a church. We see those two stained glass depictions of Christ. The actual location is the People's Church in Long Beach, New York. A nice backdrop, the church, for the subject matter of the conversation these three are about to have. When asked by Murmur if he's lost, a clever reference to the Pulitzer Prize-winning play Lost in Yonkers, the 1993 film adaptation, by the way, starred David Strathairn, who, of course, played Wegler in The Sopranos. Moochie says he's in the neighborhood for his ex's birthday party nearby at a Red Robin in Clifton. The AA session, he says, was necessary for him to get through it. Red Robin, of course, is a restaurant chain that literally built its brand off bottomless fries. But real quick, show of hands of people who would attend an ex's birthday party. Going once, going twice. Yep, Kevin Mucci is Aaliyah over here. One in a million in that regard. That, or his bullshit slinging ability, is single A at best. Kevin tells him Sal told him he saw Vito at a gay bar dancing with a guy. Chris is initially in disbelief, but then his motor starts revving, literally, as we cut to Chris pulling up at the bank. Always imagined him raging down the highway listening to Tupac's Two of America's Most Wanted. The one featuring Snoop Doggy Dog. You know, for the G's and the keys. He pops out of the car with that signature sprig in his step. Not unlike the way we all sometimes have to get to a toilet when nature calls. Real fast and furious-like. He's like LeBron after Game 3 of the 2020 Finals, bolting after an unexpected loss before the game was even over. Chris heads straight to the guys, Polly, Silvio, Carlo, Patsy, and Tony. Completely unvetted or corroborated, Chris and Murmur tell them Vito was spotted by some kid. 
Now, I understand the importance and gossip factor quality to this. But this guy's the future of the fucking family? Shouldn't he have vetted or perhaps even used the information to his advantage first? This just after a scene where he was complaining about human frailty? The scene shows the guy's more Paul Revere than George Washington. Tony's suspicious. Again, recognizing the hearsay within hearsay without saying as much. How many heard from a guy who heard from a guy things end up being 100% true? Note how Chris and Murmur immediately walk it back. He's a married man. With the gumad, Polly adds with emphasis. As if that is more important than the sanctity of marriage itself. Chris then goes into detail. Nipple rings, motorcycle outfits, like the guy in The Village People. Of course, a reference to the disco group, perhaps as famous for their outfits as their music. YMCA, by far their most successful song, is considered by many to be the greatest dance floor track of all time. Just think about that for a sec. Murmur offers more intricate details to drive the visual home. Chaps, too. Those are leg coverings, like something you might see a cowboy in a western wear over their pants. Something Junior would know all about. Polly's dubious. I don't know. Fucking slanderous me. Now, this is interesting, too, because Polly's usually pretty quick to throw people under the bus in this thing of theirs. But as we saw a few episodes ago, he and Vito just shared a large score together. Is Polly wondering if he should have detected something himself? That close proximity and all? Polly guilty of a little commission by omission? All fun conjecture, but knowing how well we know these characters now, it's interesting to play out their psychology. Lay that shit on the table. The intent that went into the words on the page. Tony says, let's take this in the back. <laughs> and Murmur's off-color joke costs him a trip home. No matter how blatant, Tony's lob toss. In the back, Carlos says, there's validity to these claims on account that Sal is a friend of ours. Note the distinction. Why would he lie is the point. I personally can think of a couple few reasons. We've seen enough examples to show us that their oath and loyalty and codes only go so far as they serve the individual who abides by them. And no further. Chris claims credit for knowing all along about Vito. Says he never said it, but he knew. Perfect tee up for tease. Hey, get the fuck out, huh? Enough of this rush to judgment. Enough of this rush to judgment. T and Paulie explain a man's reputation is at stake here. A married man with kids. Carlo weighs in with data points. That don't mean shit, he says. Elton John was married. First of all, that's Sir Elton John to you. But he's right. He was engaged to a woman named Linda, who's mentioned in the song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. But he called that off two weeks before the wedding. 
Later, he married a recording engineer, a woman named Renata. It was short-lived, though. Started to fall apart during just the honeymoon. Sill says Rock Hudson, too. Reference, of course, to the American actor. He, at one point, married his agent's secretary. Ostensibly out of love, but many thought it was to cover up something else. At which point, Chris wonders, how much more evidence do they need? Do they actually need to see live physical relations? A pics or it didn't happen meme? Tony tells Patsy to get Vito on the phone as Chris racks up balls. No pun intended. Then, Sill mentions Vito called him after the wedding at 3 o'clock in the morning. Chris says he was fishing so fast that it actually makes you realize how similar all their behavior patterns are. Takes one to know one. Sill's concerned, says Vito's out there representing us. Also, an indirect contradiction. There's a lot of guys out there representing them that you wouldn't exactly be lining up to bring home to Ma. But now all of a sudden, Vito's got some preferences and he's persona non grata? Tony's mum, not even low-grade reactionary. Then Patsy wonders, who cares anyway? Paulie wasn't feeling that. Says maybe you're a flambe. That's a cooking technique where alcohol is added to a hot pan to create a burst of flames. It means flamed in French. So you can see the connection he was making here in this context. Carlo's sick to his stomach. There's a clear division in the room here at this point. Says he's heard enough to take Vito out right then and there. Oh, will you take it easy over there, fucking Judge Roy Bean? A reference to an Old West saloon owner in Texas who famously used his venue to hold trials. Sill says Lauren, one of the bar girls at the Bing, knows Vito's girlfriend. He's going to check with her. The consigliere at once triangulating a course of action rather than engaging in low-grade banter. Also, of course, brings back a nice throwback to season one. Rockford Files over here. While Carlo's piecing two and two together, sudden weight loss, Paulie wonders out loud, AIDS? Tony, as if he were scolding AJ at the dinner table, says nobody's got AIDS, and he doesn't want to hear that word again. Current contextual aside, HIV and AIDS has resulted in between 25 to 40 million deaths, dating back to 1981. Currently, COVID-19, which has clearly upended our lives more than probably anything else, is now north of 1 million worldwide deaths. And that's in less than a year. Cut to an exterior shot of the South Bronx Law Center. Free legal services for underserved persons. Meadows intaking a Muslim couple whose son is being held by authorities. They have no funds, but want a writ of habeas corpus. Latin for that you have the body. It's a document used to determine the validity of detaining a prisoner. It's essentially a civil lawsuit against the state. Also, we learn the daughter who seated with them was discriminated against on the basis of her head covering. They say 
If a yarmulke was in question, it'd be a very different story. The show elegantly not only pointing out the hypocrisy in the world it is firmly embedded in, but also the world all around it. And then putting Meadow in the center of it. As objective and even-keeled as she has been to date, she's going to have to pick a side at some point or other. And this episode exposes that. Cut to Meadow, home, singing their plight to Carm, Finn, and AJ. Carmela changes the subject, asks why Finn isn't eating. Misses empathy over here. As much as we love Carm, we're reminded she represents a wide swath of a certain electorate there's no chance of meeting halfway. My own mother is the same way. They must have done something. Something must be wrong with them. Alas, with the show, as is also true in life, music saves every situation. When people get like that, just crank so far away by dire straits and carry on. Anyway, Finn, he's good with coffee. Maybe he was early on intermittent fasting or something. Meadow gets louder and profane about the struggle. When Tony enters, wonders why Meadow can walk around this house using that kind of language with immunity, where he he no doubt meant to say impunity. Meadow tries to explain the situation to her dad, who makes jokes and plays an imaginary violin, actually gets AJ to smile for a change. Then Carm, spokesperson for that certain swath of the population, recites the classic talking point. There must have been some reason, Meadow. Bush is mentioned. Carm says she voted for him. Sadly, just saying that, especially these days, says so much. I mean, it's appropriate as ever to ask, no matter your fucking preference on this or that. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Meadows had enough, clinches her final dig that Carmela doesn't relate to black people clinging to logs. An artful reference to Hurricane Katrina. She storms off, pun intended, leaving Finn slightly uncomfortable alone at the table with the rest of her family. His uneasiness is a sign of things to come. And we cut to Chris working out real hard, curling 10-pound weights. Now, he could use a tutorial from Perry on form, get on a program. Then Tony comes in wondering if the two Arabs Chris was doing business with are Al-Qaeda's or something like that. Chris says the thought did cross his mind, but certainly not as strongly as his compulsion to tell T about Vito's unconfirmed sexual orientation. He showed more urgency for that than for global and domestic terror cells. But he doesn't think they are because of their reaction to some Danish cartoons that upset them. 
specifically the bad attention that the protesters of those cartoons would bring to all Muslims. The Danish paper in question is called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but I'm probably not, Gilan Posten. They published 12 editorial cartoons in 2005 that portrayed Muhammad in various forms. And visual depictions of him are a huge deal and widely frowned upon. Riots resulted. Many died. And the Prime Minister of Denmark described the outcry as Denmark's worst international relations incident since World War II. Then Chris, sounding very Adriana talking to the feds-like, says one of the other guys has a brother who's a government interrogator in Syria. As if that makes him squeaky clean as a whistle. And finally, because Muhammad and his girlfriend have a dog, a Springer Spaniel, they're virtually American patriots. What? Had it been a German Shepherd or a Beagle Mutt, would they have been guilty as charged? What about the Springer Spaniel puts them in an illicit free zone? Whatever the case, it's enough for Tony. Says he's going to grab a coffee. Then we get a long shot on Chris, pondering that encounter. And when he looks down and away, ponders it even more. Maybe even remembers how much he just sounded like Adriana. Cut to Vito pulling up to his hideaway from home when Benny, Terry Doria, and Dante come into frame at an angle behind him. Not unlike the way Vito suddenly came into frame to take out Jackie Jr. Recall Terry's a soldier in the Altieri crew, one of the guys responsible for keeping an eye on the docks. Remember those Vespa scooters? Also, note Dante's watch. It's on. Reminders set up the yin-yang, no doubt. Pomodoro technique over here. They say Tony's looking for him. He needs to come in. He tries to play it off, says his phone crapped out. An excuse so overworked by all humanity that to even say it or use it today is to exceed your guilt in the not-so-subtle art of avoidance. Alas, he says he'll follow them in. You go, I'll follow. Then, like orchestral maneuvers in the dark, he leaves. Pretty in pink over here, revs his engine, peels out. And like the song cries out, clearly not looking back. Pretty impressive driving for Vito. What? Did you ever think a guy of that proportion, demeanor, and disposition had moves like that behind the wheel? Guys maneuvering like Russ Wheeler in Days of Thunder. They jump on the car. Terry gets a hip pointer. Not exactly Zach Levine jumping out of gyms over here. Benny throws a rock, calls him a fanook, and says he better not come round here no more. Fanook, by the way, is derived from finocchio, or fennel. Then cut to a rainy night rendezvous. Not Vito, but Chris, pulling up to a car to meet a guy. Corky Corporal. 
who we haven't seen before. He's an associate of the family. Also, what a great character name. The equivalent of painting the shadow of a tree somewhere off on the corner of a canvas of a masterpiece. Something few will see, in other words. My initial thought, it's his drug buddy or dealer or combination of both. Like a positionless basketball player or something. Guy can be whoever you want him to be at this point. That's the vibe, at least. But right now, he's the third party Tony was talking about earlier. The guy who was going to set up the Italian hitmen with the instruments they need to complete their task. As Chris calls them, a couple of dumb gats. Love that street vernacular. Refers to an untraceable gun. Great turn of phrase. Could easily be the name of a series or book. Rusty's referred to as the little guy in Ozone Park. That's a neighborhood in Queens. The fuck's it called Ozone Park for? Turns out it's got nothing to do with the part of the atmosphere that shields us from the sun's UV rays. The initial developers adopted the term to market ocean breezes blowing up from the Atlantic. Key features? Large Italian population, horse racing, and pop culture mainstay. A Bronx tale had a scene there. Goodfellas was based entirely in and around there, as were Archie and Edith Bunker in All in the Family. Some notable Ozoners, Ray Abruzzo, of course, little Carmine on the show, John Gotti, one-time head of the Gambino crime family, Jack Kerouac, who wrote his now-canonical On the Road in Ozone Park. And finally, Cindy Lauper, whose song, Time After Time, will now always remind me of Ozone Park every time I hear it. Note how perfectly Chris's face is lit. Half of it is completely dark, the other exposed. Split by the cleft in his chin. A chiaroscuro masterclass. For a guy who Tony described as average at best, the camera certainly loves to light him in the most interesting and spatial and Caravajesque of ways. For the record, Alex Sakharov was manning the camera for this one. So naturally, no surprise. This Mr. Third Party guy, by the way, he always reminded me of a young Gary Oldman, circa The Professional. And that's the highest compliment I think you can pay the guy. Heck, anyone. And looking at him, I can't help but think that the soundtrack to his life could be Where Is My Mind? by Pixies. There's something in his eyes and his expressions that signal to Christopher that this guy may be more than just a weapons middleman. Wait for it. Chris hands him a bag of contraband as partial payment. Heroin, I'd imagine. But don't believe me, since I don't have a clue what any of that stuff smells like. But fascinating revelation. He'd rather have that than cold, hard cash. Shows you the level he's on. Corky says he heard Vito's on the Hershey Highway. Always wondered how Hershey corporate 
felt about that appropriation of their brand. How'd that stick with upper management? Pun intended. Chris first defends Vito, but then can't hold his shit together for two fucking seconds. Tells him Vito scrambled when confronted. But you didn't hear it from me. This from a guy who's already told everybody that needs to know. Then, third party's got answers like Allen Iverson. Says it could be a midlife thing. Cut to the sound of a woman on the TV saying, man, you really hold a grudge. Everything's intentional, right? Could it maybe apply to every guy in this thing of ours towards Vito at this very moment? Speak of the devil. A young girl, scantily clad, is laying on the couch when Vito walks up. She's the babysitter. He's looking for Marie. Forget about flirting with her or peeling her off a few bills and sending her on her way. She's still on the clock. He goes to the garage and we see him shimmy open paint cans that are filled with cash. Reminiscent, of course, of Carmela and the coffee cans in season one. He tosses the rolls into a duffel bag. Things are starting to move now. Anything can happen at any time. Bands on the run. To quote the song, guy's still stuck inside these four walls. But it's time to get out. We see a young photo of Vito and his wife, clearly one superimposed on top of the other, but nicely done. The attention to detail on even that. He takes the picture and packs it. Then he goes to his kids, gives them both a kiss. Vito's on the outs with everybody in his circle. But we can't help but feel sympathetic towards him. Brass tacks, because he hasn't done anything wrong. He's a loyal capo, rakes, and kicks up on the reg. He's just a guy living his fucking life when he's not on the clock. His own fucking version of choo-choo trains. Same context, different connotation. Speaking of choo-choo trains, cut to thunder rolling. Vito's car. Screaming up north someplace. Even though we know the relocations were someplace in Jersey. He's gorging on ribs while driving. Now, I'm all for coping mechanisms. But every time I see that, the Paulie in me can't help from coming out. Couldn't he pick something a little less messy? I'm on another level. If a piece of salt falls off my fry. I have to pull over and find it. But a burger, even crunchy tacos, those are at least a cleaner version of messy. Organized chaos. Stray lettuce and chopped tomato is so much more manageable than barbecue sauce sticking and gripping to everything around it like a fucking magnet. Anyway. I found it interesting that there was no music, no radio. Probably because usually something is always on in the car, in this show, and in life. But here, it's just him, his thoughts, the rain, and those fucking ribs. 
His phone rings, and we see him wipe his slimy hands on his pants before answering. A little part of me dies there every damn time. But he reacted in such a way that conveyed his rapid response to sloppy messes inside cars. Just leaving that there for you to make of it what you will. He looks at the phone and sees that it's Phil L. calling. Note, Tony hasn't called him yet. Not that we've seen anyway. Surprising? He opts not to answer and throws his phone out the window. Too reactionary, I thought. Captain of a crime family throwing his phone out the window that isn't a burner? That's on, like, page 83 of the Made Guy manual, right? His driving is erratic and frantic. And the cut choices create this tension that something is going to happen. We've seen it before in the car, on this show. Tony and Adriana, for example. And without giving anything away, we'll experience this dynamic again at least a couple few times. Good news in the car. Bad news in the car. Good things happening in the car. Bad things happening in the car. We've all been there on both sides. And that's why these moments are so resonant and relatable. We hear a loud noise, and it's revealed that he ran over a large tree branch. A throwback to the season one finale, perhaps. He assesses the damage, immediately knows it's bad, love the cuts that follow, pops the trunk, grabs a ready and waiting parka, I really planned for all contingencies. Grabs his duffel and his garment wheelie and starts trucking up the street. Not in the shoulder or off to the side, mind you, but right in the middle of the fucking street. Bill Withers over here. Lonely town, lonely street. You can live your life in a crowded city. You can walk along the crowded street. The highway he's on is 228, based on the sign we see off to the side. It's a fictional stretch of road, but the number has significance with respect to karma. Found that interesting. Then, after some time, we see a sign saying Dartford, New Hampshire. Another creature of fiction. But we get the feeling, at least I did, that he wasn't planning to stop there. I always felt like he was heading for the Canadian border. But here we are in Dartford. The shooting sites for Dartford were actually Boonton. Heard they had a good holiday inn up there. After a conveyance of the passage of time in the form of 13 labored steps, he stumbles upon the White Mountain Bed and Breakfast. The real location is a house on Cedar and Cornelia Streets in Boonton. He puts his gun in his bag and then approaches the entryway. The innkeeper, a woman, answers. Wasn't expecting anybody, but is gracious. Welcomes him in. Says it's slow around here until the leaf peepers show up. Of course, referring to the flocks of people that come to see 
the shifts in color that occur from late September to late October. Gotta say, breathtaking. A national treasure by any measure. He's short with her, but she's helpful and calm and patient. Almost zen-like. That number 228 makes a little sense if we're really connecting dots here. She offers to help with his car in the morning, refuses his offer of cash for her trouble, even says he can settle up in the morning without paperwork, hands him a key, says he's in the Franklin Pierce room. Franklin Pierce was the 14th president of the United States, a native of New Hampshire, and thought to be one of the least popular and memorable of presidents. Which got me wondering, who is considered the most popular and most memorable of presidents? Is there one that was universally appreciated, adored, and admired? Among historians, Lincoln tops most lists for his combination of crisis leadership, people skills, vision, and advancements for equality for all. And the Gettysburg Address is arguably the most quoted speech in American history. Since World War II, there have only been three presidents that had higher approval ratings after office at the end of their terms than they did at the beginning. Reagan, Clinton, and Bush Sr. Highest initial approval ratings of all time? LBJ at 77%, followed by Kennedy at 72%, Gerald Ford at 71%, and Barack Obama at 68%. Back at the inn, her kindness disarms him. Makes him feel shitty for being such a dick. Also reminds you that outside this thing of theirs, there are parts of the world and people within those parts that can renew your faith in humanity. And what this other thing of ours, called life, is all about. Cut to the room. We see a portrait of President Pierce proudly displayed above the fireplace. Space is real quaint. He unpacks, puts his piece under the pillow. A lot of focused shots on that piece the last few episodes. If my count is accurate, this is the third time. He spreads out on top of the bed, breaking an unwritten law of mine right off the bat. Remove that damn top sheet ASAP upon entry. He can barely get his shoes off, breathing heavy, and we're out to the next morning. A beautiful New Hampshire slash New Jersey day. Vito wakes up late, disoriented, reborn. Cut from one empty shell to another, Carm Speckhouse. We see her looking up at it from the outside. The point of view eerily reminds you of some horror movies. Stray tarps flapping in the wind, a reminder of the work stoppage levied against the site in the season premiere. She walks over to a shed structure and peeks inside, mostly emptied out, but there is something that looks like a body bag at quick glance perhaps a metaphor that her project is dead. 
She's bothered by what she sees, and we cut to an exterior shot of Hugh's house. A beautiful little Tudor-style abode. 22 Sherman Avenue in Cedar Grove, just off Pompton Avenue. How fun would throwing back a few with Hugh on the front porch be right there? Pretend aiming the Beretta at birds and drizzling balsamic on some antipast. Hugh's out front, hosing down the driveway, when Carmela pulls up, screeches to a halt. Hugh looks over unamused, great little detail. He knows what's happening, even though we don't, not yet at least. She storms up to him, says everything is gone at the house. Hugh wonders what house she's referring to. Again, he knew. She says the PVC, shake roof shingles, on and on, all gone. Hugh says angrily because you left it there to rot. With my husband on his deathbed. Oh, Sarah Bernhardt. Ah, oh, Sarah Bernhardt. Love the two of them right here. Hugh's referencing the French stage actor who had a legendary run during the early 20th century. Known as the Queen of the Pose and Princess of the Gesture. Two honorifics I'd apply to Edie Falco's portrayal of Carmela any day. Sounds like this was just a father complimenting his daughter. What she got to be so upset about? Love these exchanges so much. Change-ups in the show that add richness and texture to the world. Rhyme to the reason. Next, Mary comes out in curls, screaming about her bun pan. Always reminds me of my mom asking for her 38th piece of Tupperware that was inventoried and went missing. Hugh calls her a broken record. Not Mary, even though she is too, but Carmela. Mary tries to stop her as she storms off, but Hugh says, let her go. He's had a lifetime of her bullshit, echoing, of course, his feelings about Livia at her memorial. Something beyond what happened the last time we saw them together must have happened to sour their relationship even more. This couldn't have just been the Douglas fir snafu, could it? Whatever it is, though, does make you wonder a little. A father who robs his own daughter. With her husband on his deathbed, no less. Note as she rips away, a flock of birds take flight in her direction. Cut to Vito entering a diner. Watching it this time around, I think Georgian Walken, one of the casting directors, is one of the patrons, but I'm not 100% sure. Vito heads to the counter and asks for a coffee. This as he keeps looking over his shoulder. Note the guy he ordered the coffee from is obviously consequential, but we'll come back to that in a second. His name's Jim Watowski, and it's his place. Vito steps outside to use a payphone, looking for Angelo Di Piazza in Peterborough, New Hampshire, which is about an hour west of Manchester, New Hampshire. If you watch the West Wing, it may mean something to you. Jed Bartlett country. No dice on Angelo, though. So he asks about a Roberta. Then Roberta Spatafor spells it out. Spatafor, by the way, literally means sword piercing. 
That explains that, I guess. No dice again. He says it's his cousin. Could he be anywhere else in the state? Nope. Like John Bon Jovi? He's shot down in a blaze of glory. Back inside, quintessential diner music playing. Let the teardrops fall by Patsy Cline. His cup of coffee's waiting. Then the guy behind the counter recommends Johnny Cakes. That's pancakes made with white cornmeal. Asks where Vito's from. He says Scottsdale. Scottsdale? He rehearsed any of this cover beforehand? Or is he just riffing here? Real quick on Scottsdale. Niels Lofgren, whose song Black Books is one of my favorite needle drops on the show, comes from there. Stevie Nicks, too, who recently went viral thanks to a TikTok video featuring a guy on a skateboard drinking ocean spray while lip-syncing to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Because of the video, Ocean Spray gave the guy a brand new truck filled with various flavors of Ocean Spray. Only in America. Anyway, as he launches into his coffee, sale made. He'll have some Johnny Cakes and a couple of Jimmy Deans, too. Those are the sausages named after the singer and actor Jimmy Dean, who slung sausages on the strength of his name and exited for 80 million bucks to big food. If you thought Pauly was mad about the American appropriation of coffee, imagine this. Next, we're back on that long shot of the diner interior. Very structured and methodical. The angles, the vantage points, we see this often in the show. Remember most recently when Chris, Tony, and Tony B are enjoying dinner after launching the remains of a body from Uncle Pat's into the water? You get the impression that someone's watching him, but you can't see who. Also, people keep entering and leaving the diner. We hear the bell every time. This is symbolic. This is a pattern. We've seen this before, and we'll see it again. It's all there. It's all intentional. It's all staging, prepping, planning. Like Bill Belichick trying plays out in practice. Not sure if he'll use them in a game situation, in a season finale situation, or a series finale situation, the equivalent of a Super Bowl, since we're fully committed to this analogy now. But if you can sell it in a practice situation, in a mid-season episode situation, in a mid-season game situation, a more elaborate construction of it could work in a critical storytelling or game-breaking moment. To me, this had the makings of that. The two guys that come in know the guy at Georgianne Watkins' table. And in that frame reveal, we see that there is a man sitting by himself, tucked away in the corner of the restaurant. And the man, sadly, sitting next to Georgian Walken, is not Christopher Walken. But that man off in the corner is in the very same place where the long shot of the diner interior is positioned. Is he relevant all of a sudden? Because we got two shots from his vantage point 
in one sequence. Interesting to think about, is all I'm saying. Vito's slowly recognizing that he's in a place where everybody knows your name. Where's Sam Malone? Breakfast or brunch is served. Feels like much later in the day. He's warned that Johnny Cakes are addictive. Then he notices the two guys in the booth. Wonders if they're a thing. Wonders if that is something that could fly here. Wonders about a lot. But his thoughts stop when the needle drop ends. And we cut to Silvio talking to Marie Spatafore. He's been sitting there, having coffee, waiting. But comes to the realization that Vito's not going to show. Marie says he said he'd be back from Vegas today. Vegas? What the hell's he doing in Vegas anyway? A construction convention? Expense on the corporate account? Then Syl does something kind of shocking. Asks how things are going between her and Vito. Specifically in the romance department. Cue the awkward sound effect. She's slightly taken aback, but not like completely, totally, and utterly taken aback. That's almost as awkward as the initial prompt. But she still doesn't want to talk about it. Says he's a loving father and a good husband. The canned response for any spouse who's covering up a Watergate's worth of scandal. But Sill says he goes on these unexpected powders. That's an early 20th century expression that means to leave, scram, or vanish. She says she knows about the gumad, seems unaffected. But that isn't what Sill's talking about. He wants to say it, but he drops it. Gets up to leave, slips her some blood, sweat, and tears tickets, meant for Vito. Backstage passes, too. They're a jazz rock band. You know them. Sing it with me. You made me so very happy. I'm so glad you came into my life. Interesting choice of band here, too, because the name suggests what it takes to make a marriage work. Blood, sweat, and tears. Cut to Sill walking to his car. Vito's house, by the way. 19 Ronald Drive in Clifton. Tony's in the passenger seat. I'm telling you, my business, I'm around a lot of women. That one ain't getting laid. Great shot of Silvio starting the car, shifting to drive, and one-handing it out of the frame as Tony flips his phone and starts to dial. Cut to a phone ringing on the side of the road. Road's being paved by a crew. One of them overhears the ring and follows the sound. He makes the mistake of answering. Put me on a phone, asshole. Fuck you, motherfucker. What are you, sucking his dick? Put him on. I better I kick your ass, you fucking faggot. Yeah, that's right. Telephone tough guy. Put Vito on a phone. Tony thinks it's one of Vito's gay lovers, and it's unintentional comic gold. Also, the telephone tough guy line was something that Joe Pesci said in Lethal Weapon 4. 
the one with Chris Rock. Construction guy throws the phone under the steamroller, signal cuts out, and we cut to Carm at lunch with Roe and Gabby and Angie, who rolls up late. They're talking silent auction items. You know, that annual thing they always show up for. Artie comes up with menus. What Angie says, just cook. Oh! Disrespecting the place like that. But she's got places to go, people to see. Busier than ever. She's wearing her business. To Carm, she's more put together and independent than ever. Self-reliant. You get the sense that she expected someone the likes of her to be squashed like a bug after losing her husband. But here she is. Never better. Never stronger. Gabby rails on Artie. Says he's always interrupting. What is it with these people today? As far as I'm concerned, we don't see enough of the guy. Gabby brings up Vito and Marie. Says they're separated. But Carm says she just saw them at the wedding and they seemed fine. When Angie interrupts again, and Artie does too, she's got to run, no time for small talk. Asks for Pursuit Melon to go. Melon wrapped in cured ham. Who figured those two strange bedfellows out? It was an early medicine elixir. A doctor from the second century called Galeno was early on the correlation between diet and health. And everything back then was about balance. Hot, cold, wet, dry. And cold melons paired with dry-cured ham ensured balance. Anyway, the others are less than interested in this captain of the auto body industry. And Carmela's long, lingering look makes you wince every time. Cut to Melfi's office. We open on her leaning into their conversation, literally. Predictably, it's about Tony's discovery of one of his associates being gay. She asks, you didn't know? He ponders, considers, then pulls out Chris's line and incorporates it here. Makes it his own. Says he had him pegged the whole time. Tony's irritated because he's one of his most valuable guys. Ambitious. Focused. Says he helped Carmela tremendously when he was in the hospital. Just then, Melfi brings up his financial situation. Says she was made to believe he had millions of dollars. The hospital bill should have been a drop in the bucket. Off script for her. But what's their script at this point anyway? She's like Ali every time she enters the ring with Tony now. Dancing. Parrying. Slipping the jab whenever she can. Coaxing. All in a futile attempt to get him to the apex of mental health. Anyways, it's so off script, he doesn't know what to make of that. Huh? Is that the issue? Melfi counters, you tell me. What is the issue? Back comfortably in her seat, driving the bus as always. Hello, Tony explains. He's gay, in slightly more colorful terms. She shrugs. He mocks it. I know it. They're born that way, right? It's not their fault. But frankly, I think they go about in pity for themselves. He's officially become a card-carrying member of the Ojibwe tribe. 
Tony continues, explains his worldview. This might be commonplace for you, but not where I come from. But recall, they essentially come from the same place. She asks how he feels about it personally, says he finds it disgusting. Then the show makes fun of itself while explaining Tony's point of view. Every fucking TV show now, they rub your nose in it. The lesbian thing, though? Settling into his chair? Jennifer Beals, the actor whose breakout role was 1983's Flashdance. If you haven't seen it, you know the iconic cover art. Music by Giorgio Moroder. Not bad, he says. He's referring to a Showtime series she appeared in called The L Word. Writers getting cute with rival shows and other networks. Love it. Also suggesting that he's okay with girl-on-girl action, just not the other way around. Then Tony reveals a slightly moderate, less far-right bent. He doesn't really care what consenting adults do behind closed doors. But not so fast. Teetering, he reminds her he's a strict Catholic. Mentions his alignment with Senator Sanatorium. No doubt referring to former Senator Rick Santorum, currently now the token Republican on CNN panels. He once said gay marriage was a slippery slope drawing a nexus to bestiality. Nice malaprop of a malaprop, too. Sanitarium got turned into sanatorium, which was supposed to be Santorum. Reminds me of that scene in Scarface on the bus. Not sanitation, sanitarium. Not sanitation, sanitarium. I know. Terrible. I even practiced it three times. Tony's concerned about his construction business ventures. Going forward, those types of guys aren't going to be down with Vito. People are going to want his head on a spit. As if Tony didn't have enough on his mind already. Hopefully some, if not all of you, caught all the previous Soprano references there. Melfi brings up the fact that a lot of his circle has done jail time. Uh-oh, where's she going with this? Yep, her tack, they can't be strangers to male-male sexual contact. Tony pauses as if to embrace what he's about to say, but then bluntly explains, you get a pass for that. Then Melfi, in one of her best moments, Well, that's nice. Added emphasis on her body language. Clinical, as always. Then Tony jumps out of himself to remind her that his incarceration was very short-term. So these scenarios in no way applied to him. The askance look, the gestures with his fingers. You believe him, but you also kind of wonder right there. And that's the point. Great sell. She moves on, but he returns right back to his previous statement. You think I'm lying, don't you? That character detail hits home so hard. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. The inability to let it go. Like Lil Wayne in that Solange track, Mad. She says she's given no such indication. That he's lying, that is. This as she gestures as uncomfortably as she probably ever has. 
can't help but chuckle at that. You know, worth mentioning, the use of silence and pause and room tone in these scenes is so special. So much is said in what's not said. The silence is so elemental and thoughtfully considered. It's magic. The silence in this particular case exists for Tony to admit that a part of him says, who gives a shit? Onward and upward. Says he got a second chance. Why shouldn't Vito? Melfi mentions his new outlook. And Tony's still all for it, but mentions an old friend of ours. The regularness of life. Says specifically, regular life's got a way of picking away at it. Amen. House, kids, things you own, they drag you down. One bad idea after another. Even cell phones. The menus are enough to make you scream. Don't know about you guys, but I feel the same way about the new iOS. Those home screens? The fucking widgets? Steve Jobs was all about taking away features. Now all we get is features and features and features and folders inside of folders inside of folders. Cut to Carmela in bed, working on auction stuff. Tony calls her his busy little beaver. She says, probably thinking and imagining Angie right in that moment, not really. She brings up the building inspector again, says Tony promised to lean on him before he got hurt. He says he'll get on it. Why the hesitation again? Not wanting to pay? Was the spec house some kind of a ruse for him? She calls him to bed. He thinks it's for that but she just wants to give him something for his scar. Vitamin E from her facialist to get the red out. Then Tony tells her she was right about his uncle all along. They have a moment, says he brought this all on himself and can't believe she never once said, I told you so. Accentuate the positive. I wanted you to get better. The Key to Happiness, and a song from the movie, Here Come the Waves. Here Come the Whitecaps. Direct connection to the show, Artie Shaw covered the song. Then he says that Melfi says all this standing by Junior was to show he was a good guy, and that his mother couldn't hate a good guy like that. Right back to his mother. It never goes away. Camera cuts from a close-up of them to a wide shot. The emptiness and hollowness of that sentiment. Also, an embedded realization that therapy's not working for Tony. It's not making him a better person. It's making him a better boss. Cut to Carm and Rose scratching their heads over Marie and Vito. Rose rocking a great Fila tracksuit, referring to Vito's being gay as the pink team. Molly Ringwald over here. Carm's trying to find out who told her, but she says she's not going to burn her sources. 
What's she Bob Woodward now? Carmela worries about Vito's kids. Then she comments on how smart Marie is. Wonders if she had some kind of arrangement. But don't they all have some kind of arrangement? Isn't that at the root of all of it? What all of these relationships are? Arrangements? Rose concerned about her health, thinks she should get tested. Carmela's cross gesture. Sarah Bernhardt over here is right. Meadow comes into the kitchen, owning her blazer. She overheard something and wants to know what, but is met with smiles and general overall change of subjectness. Carmela's proud. Meadows working two jobs, the law center, and interning days at Gendler, Lookstein, Abruzzo, and Abruzzo. Hey, is that little Carmine's firm? And where have we heard Gendler before? Recall, Mink mentioned the name back in All Due Respect. Note, Meadow takes out some OJ. It's original. And shockingly, no pulp. Meadow smells something won't let it go. What about Vito? She knows something, but isn't going first. Carmela says she thinks Vito's gay. And right there, Meadow blows open the whole case with the blowjob at the job site witnessed by Finn's story. She's got a real smug look on her face. Carmela can't believe Meadow didn't say something. Importantly, she says it's because Vito warned Finn not to. Now Robe Tony enters, singing a Jethro Tull song, probably their most famous. I admit, I always thought Jethro Tull was a person, not a band. Turns out they're named after an 18th century Brit called Jethro Tull. After going through multiple iterations of names, that one stuck on the basis that they got rebooked after that name was put up on the marquee. Carm says T's got to hear what Meadow knows about Vito, but Meadow locks up. Maybe embarrassed to talk like that in front of her dad. Remember, inside their house, it's the 1950s, no matter what year it is, outside the house. But also, she's super cognizant of that veto threat. Carmela won't relent, says the cat's out of the bag. And Tony's look says he already knows what's coming, but is he really about to hear it from his precious, innocent daughter? Cut to Finn walking into the back of Satrials with Tony. <laughs> that was fast. The guys break his balls about being a dentist. He's less than amused. But also, the mug he's wearing is very akin to a Mission Viejo in. Well done. Fashion aside, Tony's shirt, the earth and rust toned diamonds, is a personal favorite. Note Chris is lost in his magazine for well read men. Razor, is it? Indifferent to what's going on around him. Checked out one foot out the door, as usual. Just then, Tony snatches the magazine out of his hand, like he would AJ. Watch closely. He no-looks it, too. The LeBron James of his craft, no doubt. Making guys like Chris, guys like Kentavious Caldwell Pope, Alex Caruso, guys like Tristan Thompson look good. Since time immemorial. So, Finn tells his story. Well, not at first. First, he's scared out of his fucking mind. 
Will conveyed that fear, the fear of the everyman outsider, so well. I mean, imagine being in a dark back room with Tony, Dante, Silvio, Patsy, Bobby, Carlo, Polly, and Christopher, all staring at you. We get a great overhead shot of the table and the guys from the vantage point of the Longhorn, Caravajesque, again, of the highest order. We've talked about the Last Supper before. This is more of that, too. And it's particularly fitting here since the underlying subject matter is a betrayal of sorts. Love the choice to not repeat the story. Instead, we just get to feel and imagine how that conversation went. As we cut to Vito stepping out to take in the New Hampshire sights and sounds. Another Fila tracksuit. You know, inconspicuous attire, so he fits right in up there. Checks all directions to make sure the coast is clear. Schooled in the art of always looking. We get a shot of the main drag. Again, not really New Hampshire, but Boonton. As Vito strolls, we see a body of water in the background. I'd imagine that's the Boonton Reservoir, if they're on Main Street. He notices an antique shop, stares at a piece in the window. First time I saw this, I remember thinking, what the fuck? Where are they going with this? But in a good way. Then we cut to a shot of him walking in the park, logging those steps, saying hi to passersby, practicing what it means to live free, perhaps. That park is also in Boonton, just off Main Street. Then we see him sitting on a rock atop a small hill, overlooking a waterfall and creek below. Fucking John Muir over here. We get a close-up of the rushing water, suggestive of a lot of things. Not the least of which is, is he going to jump? Or is he contemplating suicide generally? Also, the pilot episode and that bridge. Then we get a close-up of him, looking down like his own version of Rodin's Thinker sculpture. The cuts back and forth between his face and the water is just enough tension, just enough imminence to send us back to Finn, who's by now completed his story, Tony's face, everybody's face as they process. Silvio's got a question, which had me wondering, what happened to always with the scenarios, Sil? He's got the whole thing twisted. Finn explains it was Vito who was blowing the security guard, not the other way around. At which point, Paulie nearly has a heart attack. Son of a bitch! <laughs> Carlo explains it with a sports metaphor. My guy. Catching, not pitching. Finn, entrenched in self-preservation mode, wants to make sure he's in the clear with Vito. Paulie all but assures him he's got nothing to worry about. And at that point, he wonders what they're going to do next. Remember, he saw what happened to little Paulie at the job site. This, he reckons, would be much worse. Chris proffers his own version of reassurance, says they'll help him get therapy or something equivalent. Then Tony hands him some cash, tells him to go out front, get a sandwich, and soda. A Coke and a smile after sealing a man's fate. As he walks off, Chris is livid. 
wants to kill Vito himself, says it would be an honor, and wants to do for him what was done to a character Imperioli played in the film Dead Presidents. Nice bit of symmetry that is too close to be coincidental. Just like him shooting the poppin' fresh counterboy in the foot, like his character in Goodfellas. Paulie can't believe he's stuck up for him. Says he feels he's been stabbed in the heart. The hand gestures. Guys had a rough run, no doubt. Bobby weighs in, goes Tom Petty, says, Guy can't come around here no more. Followed up with a great line to exemplify the depth of his intellect. I mean, that much I do know. The way he looks at Patsy is fantastic. Carlo says he's got to go. Carlo's fast twitch muscle rearing its head this whole episode. Tony says he needs to think about it. Bobby agrees. What the fuck? What is that he think about? Tony tells him to sit down, but Paulie gets cute. Says he'll say it again. What the fuck is there to think about? Tony rushes him. You gonna take care of his kids? All the permutations. Chris agrees. They didn't do nothing. Money out of Paulie's pocket? Fuck that. He sits down, apologizes, but wonders how much more betrayal he can take. Always about him. But in fairness to him, it's always about all of them individually. Which one in that crew would die for a loose ball. Put his body on the line so the team can have one final possession in the home stretch of a game. Silvio. Maybe. All this makes Chris laugh. Vito. Big construction tycoon. Who knew greasing the union was a pun intended? T says, this stays between them. Emphasis. T gives an order. Cut to Vito's house. Marie opens the door to Phil. Says he can't believe it himself. Phil says he's going to tear him apart doing that to his cousin, making a mockery of the whole sacrament. Phil says there was confirmation that he was in a car with a man. <laughs> what, happened to, what happened to T's directive, this stays in the room? Hypocrisy at every turn. Makes you wonder why they even say it. Put up the artifice of rules and codes and orders and chain of command in the first place. Makes you wonder how a 2020 version of the show where anybody can say anything at any time to anyone would fly. Phil thinks she knows where he is. Tries to lure her into telling him. He says he wants to get him help. But she's smarter than that. Carmela certainly thinks so. And help from what? His sexual preference? Or what these guys are going to do to him because of it? Cut to Carmela dropping by Angie's body shop. I remember thinking at this point, uh-oh, Angie again? A lot of screen time for her. Is something bad about to happen? She heads to the back of the office where she finds Angie, Benny, and Patsy in conversation. She's in the middle of handing them a heavy envelope while they explain they can get her any car parts she needs. 
she's comfortable as ever. And that arouses Carmela's suspicions to the point of uncomfortableness. Then that great shot of Angie behind the desk with the smoke. A woman boss. Carm apologizes, sort of, for interrupting, but says she's there for the bodywork certificates that Angie was going to contribute to the auction. $2,000. At which point, Angie stands up, puts her hands on the table, leans in, and says, this will just take another sec. This will just take another sec. Smoke everywhere. What fucking incredible imagery. Intentionally flexing or not. Carm waits outside, brain processing at a million miles an hour. Cut to her later parsing it with Roe. Roe gets it. Angie's putting money on the street. Carm was in the dark. Roe thinks because Tony didn't want her to know. But does Tony even know? Care. As long as he's getting his kick, the more kicks, the better. Carm's a bit surprised that Angie had enough money to do that in the first place. But what is this, though? Accredited investor status now? You got to make certain per year or have certain net worth to put money on the street? Carmela acknowledges that their grandmothers did the same thing at one point or other, too. But somehow she applies a double standard to Angie. Gotta believe partially it's because she can't do anything like that on her own to secure her future. And then Roe with an ominous capstone to their encounter. She's one of us. Now it's like she's one of them. Cut to Carlo getting some good news. He's in charge of all construction business now. He's taken aback. They toast. Then he preambles with some news. Vito's guys refuse to take orders from him. And the captains, too, led by Pauly. They want nothing to do with Vito. Sill says Pauly's gone mau-mau on the subject, referring, of course, to the Mau-Mau Rebellion in Kenya, where the locals revolted against colonial rule. Tony's upset. It's not their decision who they work with explains passionately that Vito's his top earner. He'd never have that new boat without him. He's a come-from-behind kind of guy. That's true, but... Tony contemplates if he could maybe get even more out of him were he to come back. That's how bosses are supposed to think. Stocks. Offshore shit. But spokesman for this thing of ours, Carlo, doubles down. Says it's a sin. To which Tony says, let's be honest, which is a good start because a lot of the things these guys do are objectively sins. But Tony's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that Vito's not the first. Carlo immediately knows what he's talking about, likely referring to John D'Amato, Johnny Boy, a New Jersey de Cavalcante family captain who, like Vito, his stock and trade was construction and was outed at a sex club in Manhattan. With that, they hug it out, and Tony dives into his latest edition of Rob Report. Note the Panda Express bag on Sill's desk. Hopefully they got the order right. 
Tony can sense Silvio over his shoulder, fidgeting, framing what he can say more nuanced than Carlo to achieve the same result. We've seen this before, in all due respect, this type of exchange between Tony and Silvio. Tony says it's 2006. There's pillow biters in the special forces. These guys are out here running through the greatest hits of gay slander. Silvio's point is wise, though. Real consigliere. Earning his keep over here. Says showing leniency to Vito will give guys an excuse to go off the reservation to withhold serious money. Already, he says, guys like Pauly don't kick up their full share to you. Hilarious that they both know this and don't do anything about it. Great advice. Sound advice. But how does Tony receive it? Let me read in peace, will you? Cut to Meadow at a law firm, going through reams of paper for just one case. Rafaela Martino, the lead attorney on the case, introduces herself. Michael Kardish, who works with Ray, also steps in to introduce himself, guessing that's short for Rafaela. Meadow makes small talk, but is cut off. Welcome to white-collar fraud. A list of demands is made, and Meadow hops on it. As Ray leaves, she murmurs to Michael, Tony Soprano's kid. You think she wants her to be there? More important question. Think she's really going to make a kerfuffle about it? Cut to Tony working out in the pool, about as impactfully as Chris's workout earlier. But at least T is a legitimate excuse or benefits from recency bias in our minds. Carm approaches. He boyishly says he's building his lats back up. She brushes that aside and asks about the building inspector. Again. Kudos to her for avoiding the preambles Tony despises so much. But he says he forgot. Again. No big deal in his mind. She storms off. Handles it well, all things considered. No white caps after what happened with Hugh, with Angie, all of it. Later that night, still at the Soprano residence, Meadow and Finn are enjoying some weed in the media room. No Pink Floyd this time. She's comparing some of the white-collar crimes to stuff she's seen with her family. She's irritated that the white-collar guys who siphon tens of millions of dollars can get out on bail. But people like Johnny Macaroni, as Finn refers to him, are incarcerated before even being tried. Finn reminds her that it's because of a murder charge. But still, Meadow's not feeling the jokes or the pushback. Brings up Finn's partial, which I took as a dig, Italian heritage. But Finn says, please, his dad is so deracinated. Great word choice. Which she follows up with, this is untenable. Two Colombians going toe-to-toe. Is it over for them on the basis of that? Let's see. Whatever it is, this, coupled with their behavior at the wedding, something's off. The long-distance bond is growing weak. Cut to Vito in his own untenable situation, loitering inside an antique shop. He came back 
something caught his eye. Like a moth to a flame. Cue Janet Jackson. The music inside, the tension dials up. He sees a truck backing up aggressively. His eyes dart for the plates. New Hampshire. A signal that he's in the clear for now. The man in the store awkwardly eyes and follows him. Turns out Vito's got a good eye. The one piece he locks onto happens to be the most expensive piece in the store. Guy calls him a natural. And cue the end credit music, Full Bore. Fourth of July by X, a punk band from L.A. whose first two albums are included in Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time. Vito takes in the compliment and imagines the possibilities of what his life could be. But will it be, is the question. We'll see soon enough. And that's Live Free or Die. Live free or die. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Whatever you want to call it. Whatever ice cube reference you want to drop on it. That's an option all of us have. It's an intrinsic motivator. It's one of the founding rallying cries of the United States. But its placement in this show, in this season, in this episode, where everything so far has been about change, new beginnings, some at Blockbuster, some at spec houses, some at white-collar law firms, some at hospital recovery rooms, some at what Seppenwall and Zollersites call a Norman Rockwell painting. If these guys in this thing of ours were filling out a form and one of the prompts was live free or die, the only appropriate response would be N.A. Not applicable. It's a false choice. If anything, for these guys, it's more akin to what Daniel LaRusso said to Chosen in Karate Kid 2. Live or die, man. Bowing to you like he would, Mr. Miyagi. That's all I got. Thank you for listening. See you next time.